Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Welcome to today's Beeson Podcast. Well, I'm here in New York City in the office of Dr. Rusty Reno. He is the editor of First Things. Rusty, welcome to the Beeson Podcast. It's a pleasure to be with you. It's great to be with you here in New York. Now, I want to talk a little bit about First Things. A lot of our listeners will know about that journal. Uh, tell us, what is First Things? We are a journal for religiously minded people who want to think about the kind of challenges that we face in public culture today. Not just politics, but also in our academic, our intellectual culture, uh, in the arts. Also, we cover some of those areas, uh, as well as uh, just thinking through the life of faith in the 21st century. Now, many of us will remember first things uh, from Richard John Newhouse, who was, I guess, the founding editor. Indeed. Uh, tell us a little bit about Richard. <laughs> <laughs> Where do you start with a man who was so much bigger than life? Uh, when the magazine was founded in 1990, he was a Lutheran pastor, although at that point he had already written a book called The Catholic Moment. And, uh, and his intuition, which I think was very astute and very powerful, was that um, as mainline Protestantism declined and its influence over American society, we would suffer a, uh, a kind of religious, spiritual, and moral deficit mm -hmm. as a nation. And he thought that evangelicals and Catholics uh, could fill that void. Um, and he called it the Catholic moment because he thought that the Catholic Church had the most sophisticated, kind of philosophical, if you will, mm -hmm. and intellectual tradition to think about the public responsibility of Christians in a pluralistic society. And out of that concern came, of course, what we call Evangelicals and Catholics Together, which he and Chuck Colson began in 1994, our first statement. And uh, that was a reflection, in a way, of his sense of the, the kairos, the moment in which American Christianity was facing, the need for more than co-belligerency, a kind of common united witness on behalf of the gospel. The Newhouse's uh, conviction, which I think is correct, is that uh, a nation has to have a moral and spiritual character. Otherwise, we become just a passel of different interest groups kind of competing for the public pie. So we have to have a commitment to the common good, some sort of higher purpose than the flourishing of our own selves or our own uh, communities. And uh, historically, that role has been played by Christianity in America. Um, and so it's with some foreboding that he, he saw the secularization of elites in America. Um, and Going was, back to his Naked Public Square book, I guess, from the... Right, 1984, the Naked Public Square book was uh, um, a diagnosis of a kind of ideology of secularism that was forcing religious people to hide their light under a bushel when they came into public debates and, and so forth. It's still a problem that's with us, very much with us. And um, just historically, he drew, he was very involved in the civil rights movement in the 1960s, and he drew attention to how powerful uh, the Christian motivations were in the civil rights movement and how instrumental the churches were mm -hmm. in moving and shaping uh, public opinion, uh, especially among whites. It was really the churches that did that kind of primary work of... Um, of evangelization, uh, civil rights evangelization. That was certainly true for me growing up in Baltimore, Maryland. Uh, my church was um, 
you know, when, when, when the pastor at my church got behind the civil rights movement, it really made a big difference uh, as sort of white Baltimore had to really come to terms with the fact that the old racial segregation rules are just not going weren't, yeah. weren't, they were not morally defensible. Right. Now, you grew up Episcopalian, right? Yes, I was Episcopalian. Grew up in Baltimore, Maryland. And you had become a Catholic. Say a little bit about that. Well, I was, um, I, I, uh, I was a sort of, I guess, a kind of old-style cultural Christian as a growing up. Uh, but when I was an undergraduate in college, I, I started, started studying Karl Barth. And that really was, um, I never had a true born-again experience. <laughs> But if you were to ask me when I truly became a Christian, it was really through the influence of Karl Barth. Because Karl Barth was the one who made me think, like, wait a minute, this, is, this, this might even be true. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus really did rise from the dead. And my goodness, if that's true, whoa, uh, I better get, I better, uh, you know, really, you know, make up my mind and get behind mm -hmm. this. And so uh, I became very involved in the Episcopal Church and, and was very active in an attempt to preserve a commitment to classical Orthodox Christianity in the Episcopal Church, um, which those who know about those struggles in mainline Protestantism were very agonizing in the 80s, 90s, and, and ongoing to this very day. Sure. Um, now you, wrote a, you wrote an essay, I think, around the time of your conversion called The Church in Ruins or something like that? Well, I wrote a book. A book called that. Basically arguing that you should stay even because it's a witness of fidelity uh, to stay and be loyal even though the church is wavering, wobbling, mm -hmm. and in many ways failing. Mm -hmm. in some sense what church isn't, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, but I was very involved in these national committees and I think a kind of spirit of, uh, a kind of culture warring spirit had overtaken me mm -hmm. and uh, you cannot base your spiritual life on anger. Yeah, yeah. And I came to that realization, and because you know, at the end of the day, your spiritual life has to be based on love, what you're for, and not anger, what you're against. Mm. And that's when I realized I couldn't persevere. And I, uh, as I, as I said, something I wrote, I put myself up for adoption <laughs> in the uh, Catholic Church. So what's that like be, from becoming uh, a mainline Episcopalian, a disenchanted to some extent at that point in your yes. life, to a, a Catholic? Uh, what, what's that like? Well, I didn't have any illusions about the Catholic Church. I did teach at a Jesuit university, and the Catholic Church has its own problems. <laughs> uh, Jesuits are kind of notorious for bending, or dare I say, breaking the rules. Uh, our current pope is uh, plays fast and loose. Uh, often He's also with, a Jesuit. <laughs> as a Jesuit, also <laughs> often he plays fast and loose with protocol, um, making it up as he goes along. Uh, so, and of course, the priest scandals had already uh, broken. I entered the Catholic Church in 2004, so I didn't have any illusions about the problems in the Catholic Church, but I felt that that I that. Catholicism is kind of, if you will, the prime substance of Christianity in the West. Uh, this isn't to say that the Protestant Reformation was um, was a mistake or, or wrong. It's only to say that uh, the Catholic Church is a sort of just the sort of the sort of most primitive witness of Christianity in the West. Mm. And I felt that I wanted to be a Western Christian in a maybe in a recognizing that in our times it's a very primitive thing, mm. kind of go back to first principles 
um, as the as Christendom comes unraveled, so to speak, we have to cling to these basic truths of the faith. One of the ways in which I've come to know you uh, as the general editor of the Brazos Theological Commentary Series. It was your brainchild, and it's now developed into multi-volumes. Yes. I owe you one. I know. Don't ask me. James, 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 we'd love to have you. <laughs> but tell us about that. And how did you come to this idea? And how does that maybe connect with this sense of a, a tradition through time? One of the problems that we face in the churches is the professionalization of Bible reading, mm-hmm. if you will, to people who are trained in the historical methods of the modern era. And these historical methods have been extremely fruitful and bringing, to, bringing forward new insights into uh, the scriptural witness. It's also had destructive elements, but it's had very positive elements. But it was neither the destructive nor the positive that concerned me. It was instead the idea that there's a kind of training in biblical scholarship that's it's much, it becomes so technical, it, it's out of reach. And then that the Bible reading had become alienated from theology. And I felt like those two things needed to be restored, repaired, that breach, that separation needed to be overcome. And to do that, I thought, well, we'll just make the theologians write commentaries on the Bible. Mm. And I remember I was sitting with Rodney Clapp at dinner, and, I, and he said, well, what do you, what, what do you have any project? What do, you have any, what do you have in mind? And I said, well, I'm kind of thinking of a Bible commentary series written by theologians, not biblical scholars. And he said, that's great. <laughs> and I thought, well, I don't think we can do it, though. And so about two or three years later, I called him up and said, Rodney, I, I, I think, now I think we can do it. And uh, so we launched the series uh, on that premise. And the premise here is that, that the theological tradition of the church is arose out of biblical reading, mm-hmm. and it can help guide our biblical reading. Yeah. That's the basic yeah. uh, premise. It's of kind it. of a guard against reductionism in a way, which I think is... Uh, sort of the wispy steam of the Enlightenment as it still hangs on in our culture. You know, we reduce things to a certain basic level and we lose an awful lot in the process. People want to know how the Bible as a whole fits together. And a lot of biblical scholars, again, there's a valuable training in this. They'll tell you what the Lucan view of Jesus is Mm. or the Pauline theology of the church uh, or the Johannine understanding of faith. That's all great. But when I go to church... I want to know what the biblical understanding of faith is. And that's a synthesis of the whole biblical witness. Now, no person can do that because the Bible, as I wrote a commentary on Genesis for the series, writing on the Bible is a very humiliating process. I mean, the Word of God is infinitely deep and rich. And you can only begin to just a few, hopefully a couple of gems, but not to all the riches of the Bible. But the tradition as a whole over 2,000 years is a continuous project of trying to read the Bible as a whole. Yeah. Um, and so by relying on the theological intelligence, if you will, of the church over time, we can often stand on the shoulders of giants and, and say maybe more than we could if we just try to do it in our own voice. Because people want to know what, they want to know how the Bible is true. Yeah, yeah. Not just what it means. Right. <laughs> Now, you know, you, you're Episcopalian, you're a Catholic. Newhouse was Lutheran, he became a Catholic. Uh, and yet, First Things is not specifically either a Catholic or a Christian magazine. Yes. Uh, talk about the broader cultural voice that we, we seek to have. The fundamental difference, I think, in our society today has to do with what it means to flourish as a human being. And a religious person thinks that the more deeply we submit to God's will for us, 
the more human our life becomes, the fuller our life becomes. And for secular liberal folks, that is horrifying. And so I can have a Jewish writer write about uh, election and actually write something sharp and critical about uh, Christian doctrine and election, because our doctrine of election is kind of competes with the Jewish doctrine. And still, we feel a kind of commonality because we're both seeking uh, to, in an, ever more, in an ever deeper way, to submit ourselves to God's will. So there's a kind of confraternity of obedience, if you will, uh, a kind of confraternity of effort to uh, deepen our faith. Yeah. Uh, that unites Jew Jewish writers. We've had a couple of Muslim writers over the last couple of years, of course, Protestant and, and Catholic writers. We have some Eastern Orthodox writers as well. So I believe in we are. I believe not in the kind of ecumenism of politeness. Mm. Uh, I believe in a you know sharp elbows ecumenism as we struggle to try to live in accord with the truth. I want to ask you about a couple of uh, projects, I guess. So we've spoken briefly about evangelicals and Catholics together that's associated with First Things, but there are others as well. The Dulles Colloquium. Uh, tell us a little bit about that and other enterprises that we're sort of in the hub of. We have an annual lecture here in New York, the Erasmus Lecture, which is a big event. 500 people come. Some leading voice speaking about um, religious issues and their salience or relevance to public matters. Uh, last year was, um, this last October, was Archbishop Charles Chaput. The year before that was Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, and the year before that was Professor Jean Elstein. So um, that's an important part of our project, and we're trying to expand that. Uh, we had a lecture by Mary Eberstadt in Washington, D.C. this last fall. Mm -hmm. I gave a lecture in Dallas, Texas mm -hmm. in November. And my goal is to expand the First Things lectures so that maybe we have three or four annual lectures a year in different places in the United States. Because yeah. I believe we, we need to uh, find each other. And one of the great things about First Things is that because it's an ecumenical journal, uh, people come together and they find they have common interests, common uh, concerns about politics and culture, they can join forces and um, maybe do some good. Mm. Um, so we want to be out there and be a, be a spark plug for good things that happen all around the United States. Uh, and then we have what are kind of in-house meetings, and you mentioned the Dulles Colloquium, and they are kind of getting 20 or 24 kind of leading minds to try to puzzle through some important issue. Uh, we, we need to face the future challenges in a way that uh, is intelligent and effective. Mm. Uh, and that means maybe yesterday's solutions aren't tomorrow's solutions. Yesterday's strategies aren't tomorrow's strategies. Yeah. So the truth, you know, Jesus is saying yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Mm. But how to bring that truth to bear on our society, which is changing, is necessarily going to change. What's it like to be the editor of First Things? Here's Exhausting. <laughs> Exhausting. Okay. <laughs> On a day-to-day -day basis, you're in touch with a lot of different thinkers, writers. Yes. Uh, so uh, you have a vision for the magazine. Where, where is it going? You just how, how do you think about that? I try to think about what is not being said that should be said. Mm. And, and that's, that is uh, kind of the hardest thing to do. Um, we get submissions, and so we're dependent upon our, our kind of brain trust, if you will, to sort of push, push things forward. 
but I think it's important for an editor and an editorial team to be encouraging. So if we look back to that Brazos series that we talked about earlier, a lot of people had kind of said, well, you know, we got a problem. Biblical criticism isn't really meeting the needs of the church as fully as it should. da 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 Well, you know, part of it is take initiative. Force the theologians to actually write the commentaries on the Bible. That'll move the ball forward towards whatever the new mode of biblical engagement will be for us, you know, intellectually serious, but not narrow mm. uh, and parochial the way that it can become if it's too confined to the academic realm. Yeah. Well, there's other questions then in terms of public life. What about the universities? What are we going to do about university culture? Mm. University culture in America is not a friendly place for people of faith. Mm. It's not a friendly place for people who are politically conservative. Mm. Um, so what are we supposed to think? For the last 20 years, we've been criticizing them. We've been hammered away on the university. It's ideologically homogeneous. It's not genuinely pluralistic, so on and so forth. Well, okay, but it hasn't been very effective. Mm. And when a certain strategy doesn't bear fruit, it's important then to start to, start to think about something new. Yeah. And then the sexual revolution, you know, gay marriage is a kind of wake-up call that this is a very serious transformation of our understanding of what it even means to be human. And uh, so I need to have smart people writing things for the magazine that help explain to us what the meaning of this is. Uh, so there are all these different ways we're trying to think about what needs to be said. Another area, too, is that we... There's a kind of conceit that a lot of secular intellectuals have that the smart people, you know, they believe in some sort of scientific materialism. And the dumb people, the credulous people, they believe in all this dogmatic mumbo jumbo. And so uh, so part of what the magazine is tries to do is to, you know, have people of faith address cultural intellectual issues. It's a refutation by counterexample. Yeah. I liked your term, uh, ecumenism with a sharp elbow or something like yeah, that. Yeah, ecumenism with sharp elbows. Yeah, I like that because when I read first things, um, I, I find that that's represented there. No one is asked to kind of lower your uh, conviction, come down to a common denominator that makes everybody happy. You express your views with with uh, sincerity and, and reason and passion even, but uh, in, a, in a conversation that opens yes. up the door. Well, we had an article recently by Carl Truman about how Calvinism, a certain kind of Calvinism, mm -hmm. a certain kind of high Calvinism is really the way to go to face the kind of challenges that Christians yeah. face. So that it was um, a Protestant triumphalism essay. Because <laughs> uh, we do, and I'd be happy to publish a Catholic triumphalism essay. Yeah. Uh, because it just strikes me that we need to sort of go after these questions full bore. Yeah. Uh, and we can't hold back. Also, I think that one of the things that we face is the question of how are we going to live in a pluralistic society? Mm. And I think the secular liberal has this rhetoric of inclusion, uh, but they sort of manage all us convicted people, mm. you know, mm. where, they, where they don't, they claim not to have convictions. I think that's kind of condescending. Mm. I, I would rather live in a pluralistic society where I met people who disagree with me face-to-face -face and had it out in debate and discussion. So civility is a virtue of debate. It's yeah. not an excuse not to debate. Right. Uh, 
we're involved in evangelicals and Catholics together. We're publishing now the ninth statement that yes. was in 20 years, this one on marriage, and uh, will be out very shortly. Uh, where do you see this movement going, evangelicals and Catholics together specifically, but the broader coalition that Newhouse was involved in, Chuck Colson? I think that we, as evangelicals and Catholics, are the two most vibrant Christian voices in American society. And the vibrance is different. I mean, evangelical, evangelicalism in America has a, a kind of global network uh, that is extremely important and powerful. And the Catholic Church has a global mm -hmm. network, but it's very different. It's more institutional mm -hmm. and less, um, it's less uh, uh, mission, less movement-oriented. So this, these two vital Christian voices need to um, need to be not united in the sense, again, as we spoke before, not united in the sense of pretending that we say the same thing about everything, because we certainly don't. Mm. Uh, but you know, united enough, you know, discerning where we are united so that we can be an effective Christian voice in our society. It's very, very important, because mm. if we... If we are divided, we'll be, we'll be ineffective. You know, when I look at Pope Francis, I think he's very much thinking in this kind of way, and it's, it's out of the box. Uh, for example, earlier, uh, about nine months ago, he decided one Sunday he would just go down to a Pentecostal church yes. in southern Italy and showed up in the service and gave a talk and was well-received. I mean, this was not a part of uh, any official ecumenical <laughs> initiative, but he was the Pope. So he could do that. And uh, I think that opens up some space maybe for some other kinds of relationships to develop, particularly with evangelicals, with Pentecostals, with those that maybe are on the front lines in some ways, but haven't been a part of the ongoing ecumenical discourse. The, when we look at what we're up against in uh, secular society, the kind of emptiness of, of folks that either have kind of new agey type spiritual interests or none at all. Um, I think that it becomes an imperative for us to bring the good news of Jesus Christ to as many people as we can. Yeah. And, and uh, so there is a common evangelical imperative that we share. And I think the Pope recognizes that. Mm. And the competition in South America between Pentecostals and the Catholic Church, which is serious and significant and needs to be grappled with um, uh, that needs we need we need to make sure that that does not eclipse the deeper imperative that we all share to bring the gospel yeah. to others. Yeah, we've talked about evangelicals and Catholics. What about Orthodox? You know, the the, the Eastern churches have historically been very uh, central to uh, a Christian identity, yes. going back to the early church, and yet there are continuing difficulties and some steps forward, some steps backwards. So what is Orthodoxy for us today? Well, the problem with orthodoxy is that I'm not sure the orthodox know. Uh, their histories are so deeply intertwined, the church's histories are so deeply intertwined with national identity. We're seeing this in Russia today. It's very difficult for the church to differentiate herself from the national goals of Russia as determined by Vladimir Putin. Um, and that's true in the United States, that uh, the ethnic... Um, the ethnic loyalties of, or, of Orthodox uh, are deeply intertwined with their Christian loyalties. So they're engaged in their own kind of struggle, if you will, to, to discern um, what it means to be Orthodox outside of Greece, outside of Russia, mm -hmm. outside of the Middle East, where Orthodox communities are being uh, just devastated by this yeah. uh, terrible persecution. 
Um, and and I th so I, I think it's still up in the air. Yeah. Uh, now, the great contribution that Orthodoxy can give us, evangelicals and Catholics, is just tremendous density of mm -hmm. Christian life. It's a um, it's an all-encompassing uh, vision of how we Christianize every dimension of society. And that kind of ambition is something we shouldn't let go of. Yeah. Even though we recognize in a pluralistic society like our own, separation of church and state, etc., etc., that we're never going to make it look like, we shouldn't want to make it look like uh, Romania of, <laughs> of, of 200 years ago. But there's something right about the ambition that God's words it should saturate every aspect of society. Mm. And, and that's part of what I think the magazine First Things exists for us to try to think through. What does that mean, that, that, that Christ would be the inseminating word in all aspects of our lives mm. in a pluralistic society that does respect the independence of uh, a secular political world. Yeah. First Things is a print journal, but we also have a web presence. Uh, Indeed. Talk about the web and, and tell, tell us how we could get in touch with, with First Things. How could someone subscribe to First Things? Firstthings.com. Uh, go right there and hit that subscribe button. Uh, it's easy to do. We're available print. You can also get Kindle, iPad app. Uh, or read us online. But our online publication is more than just a magazine. We publish new articles every day. Uh, in fact, I'm very grateful for your contributions over the last couple of years. It's been wonderful on the, on the website. And those are shorter, maybe thousand word articles for people to get a good shot, quite diverse. Some are on public affairs, some are on timeless theological truths. And we have a blog also um, that you can check into. Firstthings.com. Firstthings.com. Well, my guest today on the Beeson Podcast has been Dr. R. R. Reno. Rusty, thank you for this wonderful conversation. A pleasure. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast. <laughs>